Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Mark 7, 1 through 8. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we do ask this morning that you would help us as we hear your word read and proclaimed to hear your word. Lord, I ask that you would uh, help us not only to hear it, but to receive it into our hearts and our lives. That would be those who are ready to live it as we live each day in relationship to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 7, 1 through 8. As the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Then turning to our New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have noted multiple times in our reading through Genesis the way in which things that happen in the book of Genesis kind of point us forward. And especially we've noticed some some commonalities with the, um, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. And so you know that parable of how there was a son who uh, asks for his inheritance early and he goes away and then 
is gone for a while. And then when he comes back, there is this, uh, this reunion that is joyous. And Jesus tells this as a way of saying um, to those who were kind of looking down on others. And Jesus say, no, 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 no. Don't be looking down. Look, this is what it's like when one of those people comes back to God. They are welcomed and received as a joyous reunion. And so then you have the, the older brother who's standing there outside, uh, not willing to join in the party because he doesn't think that that brother should be welcomed back in this way. Well, this morning we have another uh, part of Genesis that does kind of hint us in that direction again, although it is a bit different. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse 28. And if you recall where we are in the story, uh, Jacob has been uh, invited to come by Pharaoh himself down to Egypt. And we looked at that last week and said, yes, this is where he is supposed to be going, uh, down to Egypt. This is where his son Joseph is, who his brothers, Joseph's brothers had betrayed all those years earlier. But Joseph is now second in command in all of Egypt. And so Pharaoh and Joseph have issued this uh, invitation for Jacob and his family to come to Egypt. And, uh, and so that's what we saw last week is that they're headed down to Egypt. So we pick up the story in verse 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and his, to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh 
and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. So maybe you heard it. A little hint in there of uh, a parable of the prodigal son. In the reunion we have between Jacob and his son Joseph, keep in mind that um, for decades, Jacob thought his son Joseph was dead. Joseph had been Jacob's favorite son. He made no secret about it. This is the son that he liked best of all of them. This is the son that he had chosen to be the one to carry on for him uh, that family name and line and future as the one who would receive a double portion of the inheritance after Jacob dies. And that is the son that, as far as Jacob knew, had died decades earlier. He has since found out that, no, actually, Jacob, or that Joseph actually is alive and that all the other brothers had, you know, betrayed him and lied to their dad and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of a bittersweet moment, right? On the one hand, hey, Joseph's alive, good news. On the other hand, all my other kids are worse than I thought. Mixed emotions. But then there's still the, he's alive, but he is alive basically on the other side of the world. I mean, this is, this is far away. You can get there. I mean, the brothers go there to get food. But Jacob, as you see here, he's 130 years old. He is not really in a good spot to be able to just go traveling to go pay a visit. <laughs> and so finding out that he's alive is great, but will I ever see him again? Probably not. Until this happens, he gets this invitation for the whole family to come down. Well, if they're all Cohen, they'll bring him along too. And he actually gets to meet Joseph again face to face. Joseph, of course, on the other hand, same kind of thing. His dad, who he'd had such a great relationship with growing up, this dad that uh, had showered his blessings upon him and had favored him in such a way. As far as he knew, his dad had died years ago. I mean, this is one of the questions he asks when his brothers show up. Is your father still alive? For all he knew, even if his father were still alive, he would never see him again. And so here we have this time of a reunion between people who loved each other deeply and thought that they would never, ever see each other again. And this is what we see in the, um, in the parable of the prodigal son, is the reason that the, uh, the father is celebrating, when the older brother is like, no, I'm not going to celebrate. And he's like, but, but my son, who was dead, is alive, <laughs> right? That he was completely lost, and now he's found. He was uh, dead, but now he's alive. It's that kind of a reunion that we're seeing here is uh, people who really love each other, who never thought they'd see each other again. And now here they are uh, together face to face. And so you have this um, oh, this beautiful moment. Now I've lost it. Where is it? Uh, yeah, there it is. Verse 29. Uh, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as uh, Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. 
do kind of wonder what a long time means, don't you? And then Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. I mean, this is quite the joyous reunion. Um, but there is another thing going on here, and this is uh, this has to do with the Egyptians um, not liking shepherds. Did you catch that part? That this is something where the um, Joseph actually says, hey, when he asks you what your job is, make sure you tell him you're a shepherd. Oh, okay, sure. Why? why? Why should we tell him we're a shepherd? They really like shepherds. They're going to give us good stuff. We're shepherds. Oh, no, no, no. They can't stand shepherds. They think they're horrible. You sure you want us to tell them we're shepherds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell them you're shepherds. They can't stand shepherds, but that's okay. <laughs> because the land where they will not want you, they don't want you to be right here in the, uh, in the part where their cities are. They're going to push you out into a land that's actually really good for shepherding. <laughs> oh, all right. And so they actually come in and, hey, what kind of jobs do you have? Oh, we're shepherds. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, why don't you live in the best part of the land, far away from us? <laughs> All right. And then, uh, and then of course, there's this, if there are any of them um, that have special skills in shepherding, well, they can raise my flocks too. Okay, so you can't stand us, but you're still willing to use us. I got it. I got it. Let me ask you this. If that is how someone treated you, how would you want to respond? If they're like, I just can't stand you and your kind, whatever your kind is. I can't stand you. Oh, but also, uh, if you could do me a favor. (laughs) You inclined to oblige? Perhaps not. But you know what? This is this is where it's crazy. The other interaction we see with uh, Jacob and Pharaoh is after after this, after knowing that the shepherds are detestable to Egyptians, after. Uh, Pharaoh being like, but, you know, I could, I could use some of that skill. And Pharaoh's like, by the way, how old are you? <laughs> okay. And so Jacob has this little interaction with Pharaoh. Hey, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. Is that how you describe 130 years? Few and difficult. And they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And then it says, verse 10, Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Are you hearing this? Pharaoh, who is representing the Egyptians who cannot stand the people that Jacob represents. And Jacob's response is to bless Pharaoh. We've been told since Abraham that it is through Abraham's family that all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. 
And as we've been following along, we've seen the ways that that has just not happened. (laughs) But every once in a while, we get these hints and we get these signs that maybe that is going to happen. This is one of those times. This is one of those big moments where we see uh, earlier on, we had Abraham going down to Egypt and lying about his wife. And so instead of blessing, we see curses brought on uh, Egypt. We see some uh, initial plagues that are brought on Egypt. There'll be more of that later to come. But at this point, we see Jacob going down to Egypt. And even in the face of uh, a certain amount of hostility, blesses Pharaoh, uh, extending blessing to the very people who can't stand him and his family. Now, it's kind of easy to look at it uh, from the perspective of uh, Jacob and his family. Um, But it's important to note that what the Egyptians were putting out there as far as they can't stand the uh, shepherds, the shepherds were detestable to them. I'm guessing probably nobody in here finds shepherds detestable. Probably. In fact, some of you probably have a very close affinity for shepherds. But there may be some other group that you find detestable. I think this is where the Egyptians are actually doing what is natural. That this is uh, something that we see again and again and again throughout human history all the way up to today. And that is one group of people just finding another group detestable. There's actually, uh, I read a term for this uh, a while back, and uh, I'm... I didn't look it up to see (laughs) who it is or where it comes from, but ask me later, I'll look it up. But it was the term that stuck with me, which is repugnant cultural other. Yes, the repugnant cultural other, as in there is some group of people that has a culture that is just different from the culture that you are part of. And so it's an other, it's a cultural other, but it's something that you don't even have necessarily a good reason for it. You just know, like, maybe I can't say why I don't like it. I just know that deep down I don't like it. And that we all have sort of this visceral response to certain groups where we're just like, I don't like it. I don't like them. I don't like their thing. I don't, I don't want to understand them. I don't care. <laughs> you know what? If they were to move to my neck of Egypt, I would hope they would go to Goshen and not be in my exact neighborhood. We all have uh, people like this. Here's the thing, though. I mean, you see this with the disciples, right? Even the disciples themselves, this is kind of how they viewed Samaritans. Sometimes we see them viewing uh, Canaanites this way, or, or women this way, or children this way. Stay away, stay away. But what we see with Jesus is a breaking down of all of that. And let him come, let him come. Going out of his way uh, to meet with a Samaritan woman, for example. We see Jesus uh, breaking down these uh, lines of that repugnant cultural other. 
And we see that this is the one that we're supposed to follow. And here's the point. Uh, just as we see with, with Jacob in Egypt, that, uh, that response, of, that visceral response of finding some other group detestable or whatever, that is natural, but that is a part of our fallen nature. That is not something that is from God. That is something that is to be uh, prayed through and worked through as we seek to follow Jesus. We are to be those who, like, uh, like Jacob, find ourselves on the receiving end of it, but are not on the giving end of it. And so he finds himself on the receiving end of somebody. He is the repugnant cultural other to the Egyptians. And yet what he gives back is blessing. Does that sound like Jesus? Yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Um, in fact, you see this as something that Jesus does over and over again. And then he even specifically teaches this kind of thing. For example, in Luke chapter 6, where he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is so backwards, isn't it? This is not at all uh, what the world teaches as far as what we're supposed to do. What we are taught is if someone hates you, it's okay to hate them back. And if someone curses you, no, it's okay to curse them back. If someone mistreats you, by all means, you are well justified to mistreat them back. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples again and again, you will be cursed and mistreated. People will hate you. There'll be people who are your enemies. But your response always is to be love, to do them good, to bless them, to pray for them. This is what we see with Jacob in Egypt. We see hints of this blessing that is to come to the whole world through this family. That even as uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians find shepherds detestable, they don't respond in kind, but they respond with kindness. Now, as to the shepherd thing, the Egyptians found shepherds detestable. God didn't. And we see over and over again throughout Scripture God specifically choosing shepherds and the shepherd metaphor as a way of revealing uh, who he is and the kind of way that he leads and guides and cares for his people. We see this uh, in Moses. I was talking with Jonathan earlier, pointed out <laughs> Moses, who was raised Egyptian and then became a shepherd. Fascinating <laughs> there. But... Uh, Moses, who becomes a shepherd 
so he can learn how to shepherd his people. David, who becomes who is a shepherd and is looked down upon even by uh, his own family, and yet is raised up to be king overall, leading us to Jesus, who describes himself as the good shepherd, and yet who is the king overall. Jesus, who describes himself as the good shepherd because he's the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Speaking of that kind of metaphor, is Jesus the shepherd or is Jesus the sheep? Or should I say lamb? Hmm. <laughs> He's both, isn't he? He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in, it's in fact because he's the lamb who lays down his life that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life, right? Uh, sometimes these metaphors can be expanded where, you know, we see the same thing in Hebrews where Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. You can't be the priest and the sacrifice. Let, let poetry do its thing. <laughs> And so Jesus is the uh, he is the the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the temple itself. He fulfills all of it. In the same way, he is the sheep. Uh, he is the Lamb of God. He is also uh, the shepherd. So then, what about us? Are we sheep or are we shepherds? Kind of led you into this one. It's both. <laughs> Right, we are the sheep. This is when Jesus talks about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's talking about us. We are the sheep. On the other hand, then you look at, excuse me, the end of chapter, uh, or the end of the book of John, in chapter 21, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has this uh, conversation with Peter on the beach, It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this thir- the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. But isn't Peter one of the sheep? Yeah, on the one hand. But he's also being called into a shepherding role. Um, now, he doesn't say, doesn't tell Peter, feed your sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus is still the chief shepherd. In fact, Peter uh, later talks about this himself. In a letter he writes, First uh, Peter, in chapter 5, he writes, to the elders, uh, not as like a uh, an official role within the church, but just as those who have been Christians for a while. And he says, to those of you who've been Christians a while, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, 
as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You hear how Peter has internalized that message that Jesus gave him on the beach that day? Feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He gets it. He gets it, and it's not just for him, but it's for everybody who is a Christian who comes in as a sheep and then becomes a shepherd. How strange is that? How we always are still sheep, and yet we do have responsibility as shepherds, but not as shepherds in place of Jesus, but shepherds of his flock under Jesus. That he is the chief shepherd, and when he appears, that that is when we receive the crown of glory. And so, uh, taking us all the way back to Genesis 46 and 47. This is, uh, again, where we look at the, that repugnant cultural other that the uh, Egyptians had for the, for the shepherds. And we say, is that the same thing that we should expect as shepherds ourselves today from other kingdoms of this world, from other cultures of this world who don't, uh, who don't submit to Jesus? Yeah, we should expect that. I think that's why Jesus tells us to expect that kind of thing. But... As those who are being led by Jesus, we should then respond in the way that he has taught us and modeled for us how we are to respond. And it goes right back to how, uh, how Jacob responds with Pharaoh. Yeah, you might not be able to stand me. You might not be able to stand my people. You might hate everything about my family. Now let me bless you. That is a very countercultural message today and always. But it is the way that uh, our shepherd leads and calls us to follow him uh, in this way because it is through Jesus that all peoples on the earth are to be blessed. And as those who represent him, it is through us Uh, that many will experience that blessing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.